0: I feel like I've said this before, but I always quietly dread it when I have to look at a game that's really, really popular or really, really discussed. Like, other people who are smarter than me and better than me at actually doing full in-depth analyses uh, tend to look at things like this a lot more. You know, I played this game once through as quickly as I possibly could, jotting down notes as I could. That's not going to be to the same level as what other people are going to manage. So all I have is my own thoughts on the matter, as always consider this an apology. I don't have a lot to say about the gameplay other than that it was good. Uh, No, really, it's probably the one part of this game I actually enjoyed. Um, Being able to craft on the fly. Limitations on how many shivs you can carry or or stuff was a little bit aggravating. Having to really manage your bullet count was nice. Uh, Usage of cover and stealth and being able to move around enemies. The AI was actually weirdly enough, smart enough to be dumb enough in order to trick so I could actually use tactics. That was great. Um, I enjoyed the gunplay in general. Um, tended to rely on pretty much whatever I had available at the time. A very uh, on-site procurement type of gameplay. If anything, I could see like a Metal Gear Solid 3 remake done with this type of gameplay and it would totally fit. Um, the graphics are good. The music's... There. I actually don't remember the music all that well. Uh, voice acting is phenomenal, of course. But I'm, I just don't have that much else to say about the gameplay side of things. It was good. It was good. Uh, this is, game is definitely an example of brushstroke theory, though. There's, uh, tons and tons. Of, for those of you who never heard me talk about this, the idea is, let's say you want to, you've got a brush and you're painting and you want to paint a road. So you can just do that and there's a road. Or you can do like this there's a road, or you can do like this and really just put tons of little brushstrokes into the road. And the idea is the more brushstrokes you put into it, the more fleshed out, the more in-depth of a picture it is. And that comes into video game, theory, uh, video game design theory a lot. The more little tiny things that are put in here and there throughout the game, the more of a fully fleshed out, fully developed, more interesting and generally better picture you tend to have. And that is this game in spades. There's so many little details that I decided to not write them down. It became very clear after like an hour into the game. Actually, it was closer to two hours into the game. when I was like, okay, yeah, I'm I'm not going to jot all these down. There's just too many. I also want to give special praise to Troy Baker. Um, So I mention this because I have been praising Troy Baker as a voice actor for some time. And I've gotten some flack for that opinion for some reason. I'm not 100% sure why, because one of the things I really praise about Troy Baker is the fact that he's got some range to him and the fact that he's really good at throwing himself into a role. He is, in my opinion, one of the better video game voice actors around right now as of this particular point in gaming history. So, you know, some people are like, ah, he's in everything. I mean, even Nolan North is in this too, right? (laughs) As someone... Um, but yeah, I I know who he plays. I know he plays David. I just don't want to think about him. Um, but yeah, I, I felt like Troy Baker managed to absolutely nail the emotion of several scenes very, very well. And that was nowhere more apparent than at the very beginning of the game and at the very end, both of which wonderfully mirror each other in their own ways. So we've got a zombie apocalypse story, kind of, and... If I could be so bold, I think zombie apocalypse stories are overdone. I think it's gotten to the point where the apocalypse itself, the zombies themselves, are the least interesting thing in any given zombie apocalypse story. Now, I know I'm not alone in that opinion, especially since this game in particular doesn't really seem to spend all that much time and effort on the zombies. They are an environmental threat, similar to, say, The Walking Dead, for example, uh, or World War Z, the book, uh, as another example. So they're an environmental threat. They're a problem you have to deal with. But they're not really the focus of the game. And I do think that was a, a good choice on their behalf. The only problem is that we are left with a game which is once again about how bad humans get under the circumstances. I really feel like during the, the, the initial design phases, Naughty Dog was like, Okay, we want to examine just how people react to this kind of a situation. How do we do it? I've got it! Zombies! <laughs> right? I know, I know, they never call them zombies. But that's what this is. This is a straight-up zombie apocalypse. And that's fine. Again, if you do something good with it. And I do feel that they did. I do feel that they decided to really... <sighs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and admit something. I should have admitted this earlier. But I didn't want to scare everyone away in the first three minutes of my video. I didn't like this game. Go ahead. Heap hate, do whatever comments you have to, or close the video, if, if that's your inclination. But I did not like this game. Uh, it's one of the reasons we've got that Outsiders, or at least if I remember to put it there, there'll be the Outsiders label on the video title up there. Um, I have to admit, though, that with a few exceptions, with a few specific noteworthy details, this is the kind of game I would write. Because I really feel like the writers did something mentally that I myself do in my own writing style, which is, all right, here's the framework of what we're going to be doing. And here's this, and here's this, and here's this. So then we're going to go flesh this section out. We'll we'll zoom in on this section. We'll start writing this section. All right, now this event happens. We know this event happens because that's how we've constructed the overall framework. What should be the consequences of that happening? In other words, it's a style of writing that rather than something happening because plot or something happening because drama or whatever, something happens because they sat down and thought, in a real-life scenario, what would be the natural consequences of that action or reaction? And then they wrote that in. Because the flow of this game and its story is marvelous and very very logical and very fluid there are a couple of issues here and there but they're so minor i'm not even going to bring them up past what i just mentioned the a lot of what happens just felt like yeah that i could totally see that happening in real life it added tremendous believability to a game that happens to be about zombies that are mostly fungus (laughs) which is pretty impressive and a fungus that apparently just swept through humanity like like a freaking wildfire, which is another thing I find myself questioning. But whatever. But a lo- yeah, I see this, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I could totally see that happening. And let me give you one example of this: the hunters. Now, the hunters themselves are like, hey, we're evil, <laughs> and yet if you if you read all the little stuff and if you pay attention to all the little lore, you'll notice that the hunters are basically a self-selected society where you are forced to be that horrible, or else you pay the consequences. And I thought I jotted this down. Um yeah, This thing about morality being unacceptable. If you're going to be the kind of person who's going to hesitate to kill someone, who a tourist on our territory, then you're going to be the next one killed. So for all the people in the hunter society, you are facing a terror at all times of your fellow hunters. And so you you pay attention to the party line basically and you go ahead and shoot whoever you have to and they're also constantly at each other's throats in a more or less literal sense some of the background dialogue between the hunters is a great example of that and that's very realistic it's a well it's a self-destructive society but it's the kind that i could see naturally stro- uh, cropping up in these in these circumstances Because not every cooperative, not every uh, group of people that work together are going to do so because of the philosophy of cooperation or the mentality of helping others out in order to be helped out themselves. The hunters are doing it basically because they kind of have to and because I always got the impression that there were people up top pushing this agenda down to the ones below. And they were the ones with the guns, right? Right? Now, that's just my impression. I'm not sure how true that is. But given the way they violently react to both the Fireflies and the military, I'm, I'm kind of with that idea. Uh, not with it as in, I would do it. With it as in, I believe it. Which brings me to the military, who also react pretty much exactly as I'd expect. The military not really being accustomed to how to deal with this, so their only interest is in maintaining order at absolutely any cost. There's this wonderful scene where they're scanning, scanning, up. Oh, Scanning, and the other guy just runs before you know they ha- he has a chance to do anything. So oh, pff, there we go, right? <laughs> I-, I mean, I'm exaggerating the scene in order to get across the point because obviously it didn't happen that quickly. But you get my point. The military is emotionally detached, as U.S. soldiers are actually trained to be. Anyone who is you know not infected is a civilian, and you'll notice they do try to take care of civilians. And they do try to help. They are polite. You know, they they have a generally nice tone. And anyone who is not a civilian, and is not part of the military, is the enemy. Now, I could see people having issue with that when that first started. And we do. Remember the guy who shot Sarah? He clearly had a very big issue with that order. 20 years down the road, this is everyday stuff for them, right? So again, it's very believable. It's something that absolutely makes me think, yes, that's something that could actually happen, that I could see really happening under this settings, uh, set circumstances. I'm going to rewind a bit here and talk about uh, Bill. I know that's a weird place to start, but... Actually, let's rewind a little bit more. So we get introduced to Joel, and we get introduced to Tess, and we get the very strong impression that these two people are not good people, but not actively evil. It's a thread that doesn't really have a good qualifier term for it, at least not in my opinion, because a good person would not do what they're doing, but an evil person would go out of their way to do what they're doing, and worse, for wrong reasons. And neither of them qualify for that, in my opinion. Instead, what we see is two people who are just... Survivors is the word I want to use. I get the really, really strong impression, at least from Joel, that at that point in time, he has more or less literally nothing to live for. That he is functioning off of momentum. You know, well, this is what is necessary to survive, and therefore this is what I do because it's necessary to survive. It is worth noting that the will to survive is extremely strong within human beings. This is a demonstrable fact, not an opinion. So it makes sense to me that even though Joel probably has no real reason to live... He is still being pushed to survive. And Tess, well, she feels kind of the same way. I always got the impression that she was a little more emotionally invested in survival than he was. Not in the sense that we've got to survive. It's what needs to happen. But in more of an anger kind of way. I got a very strong feeling of her, of how pissed she is at this whole situation. And that her keeping going, this is, again, purely my my impression. That I always get the impression that she kept going out of spite That that was what her thing was. To to give her a reason to continue on. Screw it. I'm going to keep being here. Why? Because screw you, world. Because screw you, fate. Because screw you, humanity. I'm still here. And then, of course, her luck runs out. (sighs) But Bill... Sorry, let's let's get caught back up to Bill. He mentions the idea... He mentions three ideas, all of which I feel are foreshadowing for the overall work. Uh, He mentions working as a team and how necessary that's going to be. And as the game shows, Ellie and Joel working as a team is what allows them to accomplish as much as they do. Uh, Joel by himself would have been screwed many times if he had just been alone this entire endeavor. Pardon me one moment. The other thing he mentions is the idea of only caring about the self. The idea that survivalism is what really rules the day, which is, of course, a mentality and philosophy that quite a few people in character have and use throughout the course of the game. Even the Fireflies basically are taking this from a survivalist perspective. It's just rather than thinking of the survival of the individual, they're thinking of the survival of the group. And arguably so is the military. And even the gang of cannibals, if you think about it, doing what we have to to survive, which is the third point he brings up, is, in my opinion, the predominant theme of the work. Although that could be argued, because I actually pulled another theme from this game as well. But we'll get to that. It's the thing I want to end with. I also... So I I mentioned, you know, we do what we have to to survive. I will admit the appeal of a zombie apocalypse is that it is actually a unique survivalist scenario. You could do the world, you know, if, if you do like a the world slowly crumbles from within thing, that's not really the same kind of topic. That's leaning more into something like one of the punk genres. Cyberpunk uh, is a good example of that. You know, steampunk can do that as well. Uh, maybe you have something that actually resets the board, like in Fallout, or in uh, arguably Command & Conquer you know, where where aliens actually show up, or the bombs go off. But all of those are a lot more, this is going to sound weird, they're a lot neater than what happens in a zombie apocalypse. Picture, if you will, for a moment, the societal and economic fragment, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, structure of the world, of of what civilization means. I actually discussed this briefly back in uh, Red Dead Redemption. It's one of the reasons I put these two ruminations close to each other so we've got this fabric of what civilization is and it's not just you know the laws and you have to do this it's it's all of the infrastructure it's all of the the materials and the resources and the services and the skills and the know-how and the and the the information and the opinions and the perspectives and the the sharing of knowledge and All of this stuff, there's all this that makes up civilization. Now, if you drop the bomb, so to speak, if Fallout happens, this, like, happens, right? Like, just huge chunks of it are taken away. If aliens invade, then huge chunks of it are taken away. If zombies happen, what happens is this system rots from within. Pieces, little bits and pieces of this system are removed from the infrastructure. And all of a sudden, we have a scenario where people who are accustomed to doing things like you know, getting up and having a cup of coffee and reading the paper. Who reads the paper? Watching TV, maybe playing the Switch, I don't know, before going to work that day and trudging through another day of, you know, listening to phone calls from people and trying to help them to fix their computers before finally going home and relaxing and having a bath and going to bed. That sounds normal, but think about all that goes into that. Think about the power plant and the workers and the resources that have to keep that going so you your job is functioning normally. Think about all that has to go into maintaining the water and the... uh, the pipes and the flow in order to make sure that you have clean water for your bath or for your coffee and how many people are needed in order to pick, package, uh, ship, grind, uh, put, put into a box, stock in the grocery store. You know, the amount of I know people don't really think of this all this often, but this is so relevant to The Last of Us, so please forgive me for going off on this whole concept of economic civilization, but there is so much and so many people involved in something as incredibly simple as getting you a cup of of coffee in the morning. That is an overwhelmingly complex system. So a zombie apocalypse like this one pulls out pieces of that. It doesn't just... and all of a sudden the eastern coast is gone or whatever, right? and Europe's gone. It doesn't work that way. Instead, what you have is parts of that are gone. So imagine, let's use the coffee analogy again. Alright, I, I want my cup of coffee. Well, t- the people who are shipping it, and no one else are gone. So now that pipeline has basically been severed, and they can find new people to ship it, but what if such an overwhelming majority of that pipeline is gone that there's arguably still people picking coffee beans, and there's arguably still people transiting them, but that's it. Never mind what's required to get things like cars and roads and planes working, right? So much of civilization was in this game, in the lead-up to this game. Let's try that again. Ah damn it. There we go. Gotta get a satisfying snap every time I do it. Which leads me to my point This is a more insidious take on things. And The Last of Us manages to be more insidious than most most uh, zombie apocalypse stories are because it goes out of its way to demonstrate just how many people react in how many different ways to having that infrastructure effectively removed. Not that it's actually gone. The coffee's still there. But they can't get to it. They can't get it to them, they can't package it, they can't ship it, they can't grind it, etc., etc., etc. All those little steps, there's just so many pieces missing. So everything's been reverted back like a couple hundred years in terms of functionality as a society. The very idea, the cannibal crew themselves are kind of an example of this, running around and living more or less literally off of what they have, because that's what they have. That very idea was probably abominable when they first started doing that. Seriously. And given their whole surprisingly democratic community and the fact that they're obviously upset at David's leadership style, you get the impression that these people have accepted what they do, but they do not embrace it. And that's the key point here. This is not about bad guys being evil because they're evil. There's no snidely whiplash in this game. There is someone who is pure evil in this game, but he is pure evil because he's a disgusting human being, not because he's snidely. I'm referring to David. Um, And David is an excellent uh, example of what I'm talking about. David is at one end of the spectrum. Because, again, this whole removal of civilization concept posits that question. What would you be like if everything that supported your everyday existence was no longer functioning? What would you become? And we see that result in a lot of people. And we see a lot of gradient in that. David's at the bottom of the barrel. He is a disgusting, horrible, despicable human being who should die more than once. But I bring him up because he is an excellent contrast to Tommy. Tommy and David are pretty much the best possible contrast to each other, in my opinion, in this game. I don't know if they did this deliberately, but I think it was a good choice. If, in my opinion, if everyone was just a a morass of grey, it wouldn't have the same impact. I've talked about this before, uh, I believe I will slash have talked about this when it comes to Dragon Age Origins. I haven't recorded the video yet. Um, because it's the, it's the idea of if you have something as a baseline, a stark contrast, everything else is in... It's easier to distinguish it from it, right? It's the very concept of contrast. So having a, a legitimately great person like Tommy and a legitimately disgusting person like David helps to bring everyone else in the middle, which is every other character in the game, into greater relief. I mean, Marlene isn't a bad person, right? But she's not really that good of a person, although she does have her flaws, just like Joel does and Tess and, and everyone else that I can mention here, which I'm not going to keep going. Um There's... This also leads me to talk about uh, Marlene. I just brought her up. Let's go ahead and talk about her. Uh, And Robert. I want to talk about Robert and Marlene because they're also an example of kind of contrasting each other. Robert is someone who is only interested in himself, and he's such a slime ball. I got the really strong impression, though that in addition to being voiced by Robert Atkin Downs, which is why he dies, because screw him, am I right? No, seriously, have you noticed how many times that man voices someone like this? Especially at Naughty Dog Games. Anyways, Robert was someone who was fully self-interested and yet absolutely... (sighs) Let's just say he was more resilient than he should have been. But I don't mean that in a bad way, because the more I thought about it, the more I got the impression Robert just didn't give a damn. Like, obviously he cared about himself, but he was at that point, he, w- he was sufficiently numb to it that he was willing to endure and survive way past what he really should have. He was far more resilient to Joel and-, and Tess at the early part of the game than he had any right to be. And it's not that he had some great ideology. It was simply that in his mind, this is what matters, and for the rest. And I mention that in contrast to Marlene, because she strikes me as someone who has the same mentality, but is actively fighting it. In other words, I feel like Marlene could have become a Robert a few more years down the line. <laughs> Funnily enough, the two ended up working with each other, but I digress. Point being, Marlene, um, Marlene's probably one of the more good people in this game. And that is saying something. But I don't say that because she is a good guy, because she's not. She is someone who... Or as my niece would correct me, a good girl, but she is someone who wants desperately to be better than this. I feel like she is an idealist, and in fact, I feel like she is basically the only idealist that we really see in the game. There could be like individuals that didn't really stick with me, but amongst the major named characters, she is the one who's like, you know, this we can make this better. We can do a better future. We can save humanity despite the fact that the Fireflies themselves are arguably better than the military, but also arguably worse in other ways. These people have no problem doing whatever they have to do in order to accomplish their particular ideology. Or, to put it in other words, the Fireflies are another organization, just like the military are. Just like you know, you would actually see happen. They're not the good guys or the bad guys. No Horde versus Alliance crap here. They're just another group. And this group is, um, well, they're bad. (laughs) They're not, not, like, evil. But they have their own willingness to do what they have to to establish what they believe is correct. What we're seeing, at least I I could theorize, is an actual beginning of some long-term military-slash-political conflict between the Fireflies and the military. I don't think the Hunters would last that long. I think that's a fully self-destructive society. And I'm going to pause here. Well... Yes, I'm going to pause here, and I'll talk more about Marlene in a minute. Don't worry, I, I'm structuring this for, this way for a reason. I mentioned I didn't have too much to say about the gameplay. Can I just say that it was an inspired choice to do the structure of playstyle the way they did? What I mean by this is, for the first couple of seasons, it's like, Joel, and he is a monster. He is this badass, just, shoot and punch, and... Wrap my bandage, and then go back and stab this guy and sneak around and then kill this guy. He is a survivor. This is someone who has had 20 years of experience of doing all of the horrible things necessary to keep surviving in this environment. Nowhere is this more apparent for me than in the interrogation scene. I, I suppose I should clarify which one. I'm referring to when there's the two guys. And he's interrogating the one guy and torturing him, and then he tells him, and then he kills him. And the guy's like, what? Oh, my God. He was telling... He told you what you wanted to know. Why'd you kill him? I'm not going to tell you crap. Oh, that's okay. I believed him. No, no! That's Joel right there. In a nutshell. So you play as that guy. And then Winter comes along. Now, there's a nice little time skip there. And... There's some good exposition without expositing where we find out what's going on with Joel and how he's sick and how she has to take care of him and blah, blah, blah. And then we play as her for a bit. We play as Ellie. That was awesome. That was some excellent gameplay and story integration. And I like how the gameplay, despite basically being the same gameplay, felt significantly different because of how they changed up our toolkit and our... The, the opponents we'd be facing, the level design, the layout, all of that was shifted so that we were effectively going through the same beats from a completely different angle, which made the whole thing feel awesome and horrifying. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, But I mentioned the winter section, because the winter section probably nails my point, my overall point down harder than anything else. Um, The most interesting and dangerous enemies in this game are not actually the infected, the zombies, in my opinion. Yeah, sure, bloaters are pretty terrifying, but there's, what, seven of them in the entire game? I forget. I looked it up because I was curious. (laughs) And, of course, watching a bloater literally gouge your eyes out to get a better grip on your skull to rip your skull in half is pretty horrible. But that's not interesting. That's just an enemy, a threat. It's, It's the wall thing, kind of, again. What was more interesting of a threat were the people. Just like any good zombie story will do. And that brings me to my next point. Marlene... I, I swear I'm I'm building up to a point here. Marlene... Marlene could have just shot Joel. Probably right in the face. He was completely at her mercy. He was carrying Ellie. She didn't. Now... There's also in game evidence that the fireflies in general wanted to kill Joel. We don't know why. my impression, based on how it is, is they wanted to kill him because he was expendable. All right, he's here, all right, kill him, take the kid. We're good right like he was he was a risk, so let's kill him and be done with it. Very cold, but most ultimately a very political decision, no malice involved, and she decided no because she had a moral imperative involved. She felt like he was one of the only people who understood what she was going through, right? She could have shot him. She could have ordered his death. She does neither of these things. In fact, what she does is she pulls her hands apart and is like, peace? Joel shoots her. To me, that was probably the most, uh, and I know this is funny because it's like the second to last cutscene, or arguably the last cutscene, but to me that was the most uh, significant moment in the entire game. It would be so easy for them to have made Joel a good guy, but they didn't. Instead, he is a believable human being with many different reasons that could be interpreted for how he did, why he did, what he did. And the way he walks up, as she's—he walks up to a a person who is begging for her life, and then coldly says, "No, you just come after her if I let you live." Bam, right in the face. <laughs> that says everything it needs to, I think, at least about the game's message as a whole, because Joel is not a hero, and Joel is not good. So here's a question for you. Why'd he do it? Now, as ever, I love your guys' comments. I love reading these comments, about 99% of you. The other percent say things like, Why is this an episode of Star Trek? And, and not, why is this not an episode of Star Trek? And simply sort of a guy talking, I don't care for those comments, even though they're funny. No, I like reading your comments. I want to know your thoughts. Why? Why did he do it? Now, I've heard several different interpretations here. I jotted some down. Um, the two I jotted down that were most interesting to me was that he did it out of love. That he loved her, that he was too connected, or he just couldn't sacrifice her. That she was more important to him than humanity, or whatever. So he couldn't. He couldn't do that. The other theory I've heard that I found interesting was that he hated humanity, that he had basically become misanthor- misanthropic. Excuse me to the point where he felt that humanity probably should die out. Now I want to talk about that point briefly, because. The very fact that there's a Last of Us 2 is actually confusing to me. I was paying attention as I went through this game, and I was trying to pick up every little tiny lore tidbit on the side I could, and after I beat the game, I went and researched the game in the setting even more to pick up even more lore tidbits that I didn't. From everything I got in this game, we're screwed. This is, a, this is an end game scenario. There is no win uh, uh, argument in this equation, right? It's not even on the table. Here's the thing. In most zombie apocalypse stories, there's that sort of impression that the zombie apocalypse will eventually die itself out. It depends on the specifics of the setting and the rules they establish. But in general, you know, there's the initial blah, and then there's the spread, and then there's the, the zombies are a danger for a while, but over time, the zombies just kind of die out. Either they rot or they cease to function or they run out of food or they run out of energy or whatever it is that keeps them going. And eventually the, 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 they, the zombie threat lessens to the point where it's not this overwhelming global catastrophe. And the people who have survived generally do so more or less literally because of natural selection and in, in, in so doing become more than capable of weathering whatever the zombies throw at them. In other words, after a while things settle, the zombies stop being a problem and it's back to just, okay, now we got to rebuild, right? But that's not true here. It's been 20 years since the outbreak, and it's getting worse. Because this isn't just zombies who have to infect other people. They just, they just I mean, they do, but the spores, right? Even in a typical zombie scenario, a zombie has to infect someone to maintain the level of zombie. Every zombie has to infect at least one person to maintain population. Here, they don't. They just have to get their spores onto someone, and those spores can get on many different people. And obviously these people, uh, these the, the mycosynths or whatever you want to call them, the infected, uh, are able to keep going well past when they otherwise should be able to, even with generally no real you know food or input or energy or whatever, right? There are literally 20-year-old infected walking around, you know, the bloaters, right? these infected are still going and are still spreading and no particular long-term solution has been found the closest thing we have even a hint of is the fact that Ellie is apparently immune and therefore might might lead to some kind of a cure that was always another thing by the way and one thing I, I I praise the writing team for adding chopping up Ellie's brain was not a guarantee if it was a guarantee of a cure that makes what happens a completely different equation morally speaking Instead, it was, we might, we may, this could lead to something. So with the infected staying a problem and continuing to get worse, and there's all these impressions of, like, the groups of survivors getting smaller and smaller and less and less people interacting and blah, blah, blah. How can there be a sequel? The zombies aren't dying out. And the humans are. (laughs) Their population is steadily dropping. How is it even possible to have a sequel in these circumstances? Which brings me to my point. I think that Joel decided to kill Marlene and save Ellie because he was selfish. I think that Joel cared about her in the same way that you would care about a favored possession. Hear me out. One of the things that I personally feel that they did deliberately, and I don't have evidence of this. I've, I haven't i have seen all the interviews, the behind the scenes. There's a lot of behind the scenes on this game, so I didn't have time to go through all of it. But I didn't see any specific evidence of this. But it is my opinion that the writers deliberately had Sarah die right at the beginning. You notice I haven't even brought her up yet. The reason why is because Sarah is in my opinion, humanity. That's everything good about people right there in Sarah. And there's a lot of evidence of this in the first hour of the game. If you've played it, you know exactly what I mean. And then she gets shot by a guy who's scared. And that right there is the metaphor, more or less literally. A soldier who is scared following orders from a general who's terrified and trying to deal with a situation they have no capacity to deal with, shoots humanity. And that's it. That's the end of humanity right there. There are no good people left because whatever was good was destroyed when this first broke out. And what we have left is remnants and scraggles of people who may or may not someday grow to be the point where they actually can be people again rather than mere survivors. When everything is awful, what's the point of anything? This is another recurrent theme, and this is my big point right there. That sentence, I wrote it, it was actually literally the first thing I wrote down on my notes right here. When everything is horrible, what's the point of anything? Everyone has their own reasons for surviving. Not living, not even existing. Pure survival. And Joel's is very clearly and demonstrably all about momentum until he meets Ellie, and then it's all about Ellie. But I don't think it's love. Not in the traditional sense of the word. Not in the sense that we would have here with our current ideals and and philosophy and morality and all that fun stuff. This is someone who has found something that is of value to him and he is unwilling to part with that which has value to him. My biggest point of evidence for this is that he does not ask her. Now, Marlene doesn't either, if you pay attention. Neither Marlene nor Joel go to Ellie and say, so this is what it's going to take. Marlene presumes that this is what she would choose and removes that choice from her and assuages Joel's concerns. It's okay, there will be no pain. And think about how much more worse are we? What kind of life could she have out there, right? And she highlights it for Joel. It's like, it's going to be some horrible, disgusting thing. But Joel doesn't give her a choice either. Joel just automatically presumes, no, I'm not going to let this happen because that's mine. Or to parallel this for anybody who has watched my stream of Telltale's The Walking Dead, Ellie was Joel's boat. And I don't think Joel could take the loss of the only thing he had keeping him going. I think that was something that was so unacceptable in his mindset that he freaked out, that he couldn't withstand it. My opinion. What do you guys think? At the end of the day, I'm left with a game which... Uh, is horrifically depressing, not sad, not dark, although it is dark, no depressing because and that 's one of the reasons why I say this is the kind of story I would write with some exceptions. I would change specific details here and there, but what we see is a very believable and dare I say realistic take on what would happen in a zombie up- outbreak, especially one that is more or less specifically designed to keep going. There is no hope it 's not getting better, and there is no future for anyone. So what do you do? Having said all that, it will be interesting to see how wrong I am in The Last of Us 2, which I'm not even sure when it comes out in relation to this video. Please forgive me. I'm obviously recording this well in advance. Um, It will be interesting because there's a Last of Us 2 and it's occurring years later. So something had to have happened. Something is allowing people to continue to exist. And I don't know what that something is. It looks like it'll be a fun game. It'll be curious to see where they go with it. I got nothing else. Thank you for joining me. I'll see you next time.